The first reading is from Psalm 23, and we can find it on page 392 in your few Bibles. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, the second reading this morning is Mark chapter 6, and you can find that on page 711 of your pew Bibles. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? And he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and his own house, is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet liked to listen to him. 
Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wage. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. 
When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is the word of the Lord. If you're tempted to uh, close that part of the Bible, if you uh, have not got Mark still open in front of you, can I encourage you to reopen it? Uh, If you're new visiting amongst us, uh, we're looking at Mark's Gospel. We're asking that question of uh, who Jesus is as we lead up to Easter, uh, that we might be better prepared to celebrate him, uh, that we might grow to love him more and worship him more deeply. Uh, So let's pray that uh, God might speak to us clearly this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for revealing in your word your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can know him. And Father, we pray this morning that we might know him better. Uh, Father, take away from us the distractions of the week uh, and help us focus entirely on what you would have us hear. Uh, Father, may your spirit take this word and write it deeper in our hearts and minds that we might live lives that glorify and honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, There are 7 billion people in the world currently, give or take. Uh, About 2.2 billion would call themselves Christians. Uh, 1.5 billion would say that they are Muslims. Uh, There are about a billion who'd say they're without religion. Uh, About a billion Hindus and half as many of that of Buddhists. Uh, Lower down the number of adherents, if you continue to kind of work your way through it, there are folk religions, there is Shinto, there is Taoism, there's Judaism, there are Sikhs. Without even looking into them, uh, it's led many to conclude that God has been far from clear in revealing himself. Perhaps that kind of question has nibbled away at you. you Why isn't God clearer? Uh, not, of course, that you need to you know, search the world to start wondering those kind of questions. Uh, why is it that while we sit here in church, uh, there is an even larger crowd, I'm willing to bet, uh, down the road honouring the bridge rather than Jesus? You know, why can someone sit in a pew next to me for five years and then walk away never having grasped Jesus? You know, why doesn't God make it clearer to them? Now, these are really important questions, uh, questions that if you don't answer, they will gnaw away at your faith. Uh, but if you do deal with them, uh, they can strengthen your faith in really difficult and hard times. Uh, this morning, we're not going to explore every aspect of God's self-disclosure, uh, but Mark 6 points us to one very important truth. Uh, people don't want God's revelation. They don't want God's revelation. Uh, so we come here, and we, we keep, as we look at Mark, keep asking that question of who is Jesus... Uh, and the answer in this section lies in, in his origin, where he comes from. So way back in 127, as, as kind of Mark's been telling a story for us, in 127 there was an amazed crowd at Capernaum. Uh, they heard Jesus teach, they saw him drive out a demon, and they asked the question, what is this? Uh, and then later on, the, the religious leaders in 2.7, uh, 
Uh, they're asking the question, who is this? After they saw Jesus uh, forgive a paralytic sins, uh, it's the same question that the disciples asked at the end of chapter 4. They saw Jesus calm the storm and they go, who is this? Who can do that? But by the time we get to the start of chapter 6, we see that you can't understand Jesus unless you understand where he comes from, his origins. Uh, In his hometown, they're asking the question, where did this man get these things? We'll only know Jesus properly when we understand where he's from. Who is Jesus? This week we see that he is the unwanted revelation of God. He is the unwanted revelation of God. And in understanding that, we actually see a couple of things. We see the lengths God has gone to in making himself clear and why it is that there are so many empty seats in churches across Sydney this weekend. Uh, first thing we need to grasp is that Jesus is the revelation of God. Uh, so the, the question asked in his hometown in 6 verse 2, it's wedged uh, in the story between these great miracles that point to who Jesus is. Uh, so it comes just after, if you were with us last week, Jesus proved himself a Lord over creation. He, he calmed the storm. He was Lord over evil as he drove demons out. Uh, he's Lord over sickness and death as he raised the little girl to life. And then after, at the end of this chapter, we get uh, Jesus feeding the multitude and and walking on water. It's clarifying what's been hinted at, that Jesus is God himself. Where does this power come from? It comes from God. So in verse 30, 6 verse 30, uh, the disciples return from a a short-term mission and they're seeking a little R&R. Uh, And so in verse 32, they head off to uh, a solitary place. Literally, they head to the wilderness. But again, the crowds are following them. Uh, So in verse 34, Jesus looks out over and he sees God's people and he sees their need. He sees they are a people who need a leader to spiritually care for them. And so he begins to teach. And he sees their physical need. And so with five loaves and two fish, he looks to heaven and he gives thanks and he produces food to satisfy you know, 5,000 men with leftovers to spare. You know, it's more than just kind of a country women's association afternoon tea. This is, this is an abundance. You know, it's an incredible moment. And, and for those familiar with God's actions in the past, this, this feeding is pregnant with significance. You know, in Moses' time, God fed his people in the wilderness. Uh, in Numbers 11... Uh, Moses complained just like the disciples did. Um, It's too hard to feed these 6,000. And God replied to Moses in that time, is the arm of the Lord too short? And then he went on and he fed them. Just like Jesus did on that hillside. Now Isaiah 55, uh, look forward to the day when the Lord would satisfy the hungry and the thirsty. Uh, It's no accident that in verse 42, Mark mentions the crowds all ate and they were satisfied. That is, they, they they were stuffed. Uh, and there were still 12 basketfuls left over. Now, we had, we had Psalm 23 read to us. Roger read it to us. It spoke of the Lord's good shepherding. Yeah, how he will lead his flock, his people, to green pastures and he will restore their souls. Again, it's not an accident in verse 39 that Mark points out the crowds sit on lush green grass, even in the wilderness. Yeah, not only are their physical needs being met, but as he compassionately teaches them, he is restoring their souls. Yeah, Jesus is not just performing another interesting miracle to kind of you know, have a great anecdote you can tell at another dinner party. No, he is revealing his origin. You know, God is there amongst them and he wants them to understand that. 
And in case that's not enough, he, he drives the home, home the point by walking on water. So in verse 45, um, he dismisses the, the well-fed hordes and he sends his disciples off across the water ahead of him. Uh, without Christ amongst them, they're struggling. So in verse 48, uh, they are struggling against those chaotic forces of the sea. And this time Jesus walks to them on the water. Uh, their response in verse 50 uh, is less excitement and more terror. And again, Jesus isn't doing this just for a party trick, just because he can. He wants to unmask who he is for those who are familiar with the way God works. Uh, in Job 9.8, it is the Lord who treads on the waters. Yeah, and Mark carefully uses language in verse 48. Uh, Jesus um, intended to, he was about to, he intended to pass them by. So in Moses' time, uh, God revealed himself by letting his glory pass by while Moses was on the mountainside, hidden safety, safely in a, in a crack in the mountain. You know, Elijah had a similar mountaintop experience in 1 Kings 19 where God had his glory pass by whilst he was in the shelter. And Jesus intends to pass them by, not in the safety of the mountains, but there in the middle of the chaos of the sea. Now his word literally in verse 50, um, I am, not just it is I, it's I am, don't fear. Again, that's a, that's a meaningful statement. Uh, in Exodus 3, God introduced himself as I am. That is, I am the one who will not be defined. I am the one who will not be contained by any person. I am the one who defines and rules. Now, Jesus isn't just kind of walking across waters because it, it's, it's enjoyable or pleasant. No, he is answering that question that was asked, where are you from? You know, here is the clear revelation of God. Here is God himself among them. Clarity is not the problem. It's our willingness to receive. Uh, the story is told of um, uh, Admiral Lord Nelson, uh, the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. Uh, if you don't know that battle well, let me, let me give you a few details. Uh, the battle started particularly poorly for the British, uh, so they're attacking the Danes. Three of their fleet had uh, run aground, kind of before the battle even started properly, uh, the rest had copped much heavier fire than they'd anticipated from the Danes. And so the signal was given out to Nelson uh, to retreat, to withdraw, to get out of there. You know, save the fleet, save a little bit of pride, get out. Uh, Nelson was told of the signal and he turned to his flag captain and he said, uh, you know, Foley, I have only one eye. I have a right to be blind sometimes. Uh, and he famously raised his telescope up to the blind eye and said, I really don't see the signal. Uh, ploughed on, he did have success, it paid off for him. <laughs> the revelation was clear, the signal was clear, but Nelson didn't want to acknowledge it. Yet Mark 6 makes the same point. Jesus is not just the revelation of God, he's the unwanted revelation of God. Uh, the problem is not that Jesus isn't revealing God, it's, it's on the receiving end. People don't want the truth. That's all we need to grasp as well, not just that he is the revelation of God, but that, that it's unwanted. Uh, he's unwanted, first of all, in his hometown. You know, he goes back to the synagogue he grew up in, uh, and they're amazed in verse 2 at his teaching. Um, they're not disputing in verse 3 that he's done great stuff, but, but their familiarity with Jesus. You know, the familiarity with the family, uh, ultimately in verse 3, offends them. You know, who is Jesus to do this? There's no one kind of stepping forward you know, with those interviews and kind of going, yes, oh, that Jesus, I always knew he was special. 
I knew he'd, I knew he'd make good. Well, I, I spotted it. No one else noticed. But no, no, one, no one there was coming doing that. They're, they're just scandalised that someone as ordinary as him, you know, this working class carpenter, he didn't go to rabbi school. You know, someone's so familiar. They know his mum. They know all his brothers by name. You know, how is he going to be a prophet of God? You know, the evidence is there, but they don't want it. You know, and he's unwanted by, by even the leadership and people more broadly. Uh, so in, in verses 8 to 12, Jesus expands the mission. He sends the 12 off, preach with power. Uh, but in verse 11, he warns them. He, he flags for them that the message won't be received, uh, just like it wasn't with John the Baptist. You know, there's that lengthy flashback we get uh, to John's fate. Uh, it's to help us make sense of how Jesus is being received. You know, Herod heard in verse 14 about Jesus' ministry uh, and memories of what he'd done to John seemed to haunt him. You know, he loved John's sermons in verse 20. He liked to listen to John, thought John was a great preacher. He just disliked the moral judgments that John used to cast. You know, sure, the evidence that God was there, you know, he could recognise that God was at work in John, but Herod didn't want it. Uh, instead, by the time you get to verse 26, at the party, he would rather keep his reputation in front of some important guests. And so he gives the order to have John killed. Yeah, and now Jesus' work has reached Herod. And that pattern is there that people don't want it. Now, perhaps the most shocking and surprising one, though, is that even his disciples have trouble accepting now, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the teaching, but as, as Jesus is there revealing himself to them as God, they are struggling to cope. In verse 52, there on the ocean, there on the sea, they fail to understand about the loaves and so their hearts are hardened. That is, they had the evidence from that feeding that, that they failed to recognise at that moment God was present with his people, providing, satisfying their needs. And because they missed that moment where God was revealing himself they couldn't make sense of, of Christ God walking on the waters again. Now, the description of their, their misunderstanding is really strong. They have hardened hearts. That's language Mark normally uses to describe the Pharisees who tried to kill Jesus and eventually you know, succeeded in having him put to death. Now, who's Jesus? Yeah, he's the un, he is the revelation of God, but he's unwanted. And in rejecting him, people don't just reject a good man. They don't just reject a good teacher. They, they reject the true and living God. And it's not just that God needs to make himself clearer to people. Humanity doesn't want to see God. You know, like Nelson, too many people look at the revelation of God in Christ through their blind eye. Uh, Pincus Lapide He's not just a great name. Uh, Pincus Lapide is a, a recent Jewish historian, uh, passed away about 10 years ago. Um, as I say, he's Jewish, he's not a Christian. Uh, he wrote a book all about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, to quote him, In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of the Easter faith. Thus, according to my opinion... The resurrection belongs to the category of the truly real. That is, he wrote a book saying, I really think Jesus rose from the dead. And he wrote the rest of the book trying to justify why he didn't want to follow Jesus. He doesn't dispute the evidence, but he doesn't want it. Now, Jesus is that clear revelation of God. He is clear and it's clearly unwanted. When we understand that about who Jesus is, 
uh, three implications for us this morning that flow. Uh, first, beware familiarity. So in, Je in Jesus' hometown, he is dismissed because they just know him too well. Yeah, he quotes that well-known saying uh, in his day, it was well-known that a prophet in his hometowns without honour, you know, it's still the case, isn't it, that the only conference worth going to is when they've got an international speaker. Um, yeah. He might just have easily said, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, they won't accept the revelation of God because Jesus is just a bit too ordinary for them. Yeah, they know him just a bit too well. And the tragedy of their unbelief is it prevents blessing. So in verse 5, Jesus is unable to perform many miracles amongst them. Uh, it's not that he's you know, dependent and his power is kind of somehow limited by us, but the sense is he's not able because it's not morally right for the blessings of the kingdom of God to go to those who refuse to believe. Now, Jesus' home crowd is a warning for you and I. Now, it's not an excuse, but it's, it, it's a flag, an insight into the dangers of familiarity with Jesus, all those stories you grew up knowing as a child. Now, we live in times where access to, to the knowledge of God is really easy. A couple who um, I studied theology with, uh, they're over in Vanuatu teaching theology, and, and they're not in the kind of nice bit of Vanuatu, they're not in Vila, they're out in remote part of Vanuatu, uh, villages there in that part of Vanuatu are for the first time in the, you know, in the first couple of generations of hearing the good news and the gospel of Jesus. Um, so uh, they have people who, who give up key harvest times to come to learn some theology. They might go back, take it to their village and then take it to the village next door and pass the message on. You know, they will get, and it shames our complacency. You know, we can get so ho-hum about, you know, oh yeah, I've heard that story. Walking on water, yep, I covered that when I was in kids' church. And, and it can all get a bit ho-hum. Yeah, and, we, and we can fall into the trap of looking for the next Christian fad. Uh, the church that I grew up in, uh, many of them got swept up in the Toronto Blessing. Uh, it was acclaimed, the Toronto Blessing was acclaimed movement of God which uh, would reduce people to uncontrollable laughter. You know, for them... It was looking for the next silver bullet that would incredibly make their relationship God, with God fantastic. And, and there is no silver bullet in the Christian life. You know, reading the Bible, prayerfully applying it to your life, it's the tried and tested way of knowing God. And if you've grown tired of the kind of same old, same out, let me say, watch out. Watch out that familiarity doesn't lead you to unbelief and in the end rob you of the blessing of Christ's revelation. Second implication, uh, expect unbelief. Now, don't be shocked when you go and you share the great news of Jesus with somebody you love and they don't change. Now, seeing the evidence doesn't guarantee people will be saved. Don't, don't then fall into the trap of just endless intellectual games with, with people who won't believe. Now, there's been a thread building in this part of Mark over the past few chapters that ever since he taught um, the parable about, that talked about the division uh, between those who believe and don't. There's, there's this common reaction to Jesus uh, of, of terror and fear and they don't want him. Uh, in Mark 5, um, uh, the townsfolk of the Gerasenes, when Jesus restored this demonic, they beg him not to stay but to leave. They'd rather have their profits with evil than the cost of goodness. And, and Mark 6 kind of ramps that thread up. You know, the, the, the hometown crowd of Jesus would rather keep their prejudice than be swayed by the evidence. Herod would rather uh, keep face with dinner guests 
than accept the evidence for God's work. Yeah, Herodias would rather, she would rather have her immoral relationship. Now, it's not that the revelation of God is questioned. The evidence is there, but still they won't have faith. In the 19th century, uh, the slave trade had already ended in the UK, but was still alive and well in the US. Uh, a chap called Calvin Stowe, he stood before a crowd in England and he said to them this, slavery would die in America if England boycotted its cotton. Are you willing to sacrifice one penny of your profits to do away with slavery? And of course, the crowd's response was booing. Yeah, and many do the same with Christ. Now, the problem's not the evidence, it's the hard hearts. Yeah, I shared the gospel with a man, and as we delve deeper, it wasn't really that he had problems with Jesus' divinity or the historicity of the Bible or Christ's resurrection. It was that it would meant he would have to give up a particular immoral relationship. You know, we can tie ourselves in knots trying to persuade our friends of the evidence for Jesus, and the evidence is important. You know, the truth of history really is essential to the truth of the gospel, but, but evidence won't save people. You know, Bonhoeffer said of those who find miracles like these hard to believe, he said, you are disobedient. You are trying to keep some part of your life under control. That's what's preventing you from listening to Christ and receiving his grace. You can't hear Christ because you are willfully disobedient. Now, we must expect unbelief. Now, beware the in- endless intellectual games, and especially if you're here this morning playing them. Finally, expect rejection. Now, Jesus sends out his disciples in verse 11. Uh, he explains, not only are you going to find unbelief, um, you're going to experience rejection. Uh, Mark is very careful. He doesn't detail what they did on their mission. Uh, we don't get any uh, you know, expanded details on it. Rather, we, we get this lengthy description of John's murder. Uh, he, Mark wants us to see that the, the grid to understand their mission work, the, the grid to understand Jesus' mission is rejection. Like John, Jesus would be handed over. Like John, Jesus will face an earthly king who believed he was innocent but wanted to please a crowd. Like John, Jesus would be condemned unjustly by opportunistic enemies. Like John, Jesus would be rejected and killed. Rejection is, is the expectation of revealing God in Jesus to people. Now, it's not all rejection, let me qualify that, you know. Some will believe, some will delight in it, some will accept it. At the end of the chapter, you do see crowds flocking. Now, God's mercy is challenging because it asks a lot of people in terms of change. But, but some will accept, many will accept, and, but, but not all. You must expect rejection. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we had an update from uh, the Voice of the Martyrs uh, and, and the persecuted Vietnamese families that, that we as a church support. They've been rejected and imprisoned for their faith. And it shouldn't surprise us. Thankfully, in God's mercy, we've we've seen a few of those families released of late, but but the rejection and the opposition will continue. Again, in God's kindness, um, that's not the kind of opposition we experience. Uh, Though it's interesting to see how things are changing. A a, a headline from the Guardian paper in the UK just last week was, uh, Can Britain Tolerate Christians? may not be the way we experience it, but I've lost friends over Jesus. You know, I trust it's not that I've been offensive. I hope it's not that I was offensive. Uh, but I've had conversations with people about Jesus uh, and they're so keen to run from him 
uh, that they can't keep up with me or won't keep up with me. You know, maybe, maybe they're afraid I'll keep banging on about him and I, and I hope that's not the case. I suspect it's simply my life and my, my presence is a reminder of all that they refuse. You know, they don't want the revelation of God in Jesus. Jesus. 